Well, let's open our Bibles together to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. Some of you I know are very studious, and you're already in Habakkuk 2. And you think I threw you for a loop today, and I did, but only temporarily, only for a few moments. But um, I want us to remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as to why we have books like Habakkuk, these seemingly odd little minor prophets tucked away in the parts of our Bibles where maybe the pages still stick together. Um, But there's a purpose and a meaning behind what God has given to us in those more obscure books. And Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as he's uh, warning the Corinthians against the uh, idolatry that was so uh, prevalent in Old Testament Israel and Judah. He says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, in other words, because God preserved those lessons for us in Scripture. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, beware of pride that cause you to think that you could never fall the way others have fallen or rebel the way others have rebelled. Don't put Christ to the test. No temptation has overtaken you, verse 13. Common verse, but usually yanked out of its context. No temptation has overtaken you that is not come to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We are fallen as they were fallen. We're cut out of the same bolt of fabric of total depravity, and we could do the very things that they did that Paul warns the Corinthians against. And so let us not put Christ to the test by thinking too highly of ourselves or even by thinking about going into sin knowing that Christ will forgive us anyway. Oh, no, no, no. The kind of temptation and testing that's being talked about in verse 13 is that which we face every day, but let us not take advantage of God Let us not take advantage of his grace. Let us know that he's faithful to help us in times of temptation. But let us not, with our eyes wide open, on purpose walk into temptation, expecting him to rescue us and forgive us. That is an abuse of grace. So let's keep those things in mind. And so let's go back to Habakkuk, chapter 2. Habakkuk 2, we'll read the chapter and then we'll walk through it together, see what the Lord has for us today. 
Habakkuk 2 verse 1, I, the prophet says, will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor, neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What's the big idea this morning? What's this? God declares the believer righteous in Christ by faith alone. Then those who are righteous are made faithful. Justification by faith in Christ is lifted up here by an Old Testament prophet, but there's also a warning to those who believe. That is, that with justification of faith, by faith in Christ, we are justified before God, 
with that justification comes the seed for sanctification. In other words, there is an expectation throughout the scriptures that those who are saved will end up living like they are saved and thinking biblically and following the Lord. That's the big idea. Now, the original context of the book needs to be remembered, but let's not make the mistake of thinking there is not also a message for each of us here personally. Yes, the warnings for nations and leaders um, were first directed at Babylon, but certainly nations and leaders can profit from listening today. But there are also promises of chastisement and eventual salvation for those who trust God and walk in his way. So it's not only God punishing the wicked, but it's also God chastising those who belong to him. And all of these things are written for our example, the Apostle Paul said, so that we will walk in the true faith that ends up producing practical righteousness, not that we abuse salvation by grace through faith by continuing to live in sin and for ourselves. So again, the big idea God declares the believer righteous in Christ by faith alone. Then those who are righteous are made faithful. By who? By God. God makes us faithful. But our mind, our emotion, our will, that is, our heart, is involved all along. Now, with that big idea in mind, there are four responses that God expects from us. Number one, look to the Lord and wait on his word. Look to the Lord and wait on his word. Look at the first three verses. You might remember from last week that we thought about the concept that biblical faith trusts in the character of God, not in what we can see. Okay? So when we cannot comprehend how and why God is working the way he is working, we can trust his character. And so as the prophet voiced his questions in chapter 1, he says now in verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm going to stand on my watchtower and wait for God to answer my questions. And the Lord does answer, verse 2. Write the vision. Make it plain. So write down this book, essentially, was the answer. Habakkuk, my answer to your questions is, write this prophecy. And praise God, we now have God's answers to the same questions that we ask. And we are directed to to do the very same thing that Habakkuk was directed to do. That is, look to the character of God and trust him, not to our circumstances or to our world. And God's answer and his work will come at its appointed time, verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. The reason you're, you're not seeing Things happen yet, Habakkuk, is because it's not my time, is what God is saying. 
God's timing is perfect. God's answer may come slower than the prophet desires, but it will not be late. That is a truth that we can hold on to. God's answer may come slower than we want it to come, but it will never be late. It was this way in the coming of Jesus. Let me remind you of some scriptures. Galatians 4.4 4 says that God sent his only begotten son in the fullness of time. That's another way of saying at the perfect moment in history. Or in Acts 4 when the apostles are preaching boldly the gospel of Christ. They assert that what happened to Jesus was what God had planned to happen to his son. It says in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The preacher makes it very clear that what happened to Jesus was according to the predetermined plan of God, and yet he looks at those people and says, but you are guilty of murdering him. Such is the tension that we see in Scripture that we will never be able to reconcile in these finite minds, the tension between man's responsibility and the sovereignty of God. But we trust God who is sovereign, who is always at work. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, um, I'll mention this again later, because it's one of the three times that one of the verses in this chapter is quoted. In Hebrews 10.37, says that the righteous shall live by his faith. And here, what the writer does, he informs us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that verse 3 is fulfilled in Christ. Because he says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The coming one will come. Even unknown to Habakkuk, there is being preserved in his prophecy pointers to Jesus and the perfection of God's timing. The return of Christ will be at an appointed time unknown to us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Therefore, let us live by the faith that produces righteousness so that we do not shrink back into sin. Now, this appointed time principle covers everything. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Think about something that you're waiting for. Perhaps you're praying your guts out for and have been for years. In everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. You can put your expectation, what you are waiting for, into that verse, for blank. There is a season 
and for a time for every matter under heaven. There is a perfect time. So there's an appointed time for everything. The problem with us, <laughs> I have this problem, maybe I'm the only one in the room who does. But um, God's answer usually comes slower than I desire. But it will never be late. It will never be late. Our responsibility is to look to the Lord and wait on his word. But when we think about waiting on the Lord, let me help you to understand that waiting is not passive. Sometimes, over, over the course of my 30-some years of being a Christian, I've heard people talk about waiting on the Lord, and, and I get the gist of what they're saying, and yet I look at what they're doing, and they're doing nothing. They're sitting in their spiritual recliner. They've kicked up the footrest, and they're waiting on God. And yet you don't find that in Scripture. Waiting is not passive. Waiting is active. Waiting is doing what you know God says is the right thing to do today while you wait for the other stuff that you're longing for, that you're waiting for. David says this in Psalm 25 when he says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So he says, For you I wait all the day long. But the, he, he just said, Make me know my ways. <laughs> Make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me. So if you are waiting on the Lord to do something, then it is your responsibility to look at your own heart and your own life and say, Lord, are there ways I need to repent? Are there ways that you need to teach me to walk with you? Stop looking at everybody else and how you think they need to change. And you look into the mirror of God's word and you say, Lord, teach me your ways. Change me, Lord. That's biblical waiting on the Lord. It requires us to look at ourselves. It requires us to humble ourselves before God. It requires us to say, like David said, make me to know your ways. Teach me, Lord. Show me, lead me in your truth. This is what it means to personally look to the Lord and wait on his word. But there's a second response that God expects from us this morning. Number two, live by the faith that is interwoven with righteousness. Verses four and five. The, the prophet here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, weaves faith and righteousness together that is consistent throughout the Bible and is fulfilled in Christ and for those who believe in him. What we see here is a contrast in verse 4 between the righteous who live by faith and the wicked whose life is a testimony to a lack of faith. The unbeliever's life is filled with the rotten fruit of pride. Verse 4, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Verse 5, he's an arrogant man who's never at rest. Greedy as greedy as Sheol, which is an Old Testament word for the grave. He's as greedy as a cemetery waiting for more bodies. This is certainly true of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was being spoken of in, in this prophecy. But again, it's recorded here for our benefit. So what is there to learn? 
Well, we see two qualities of true saving faith. Number one, true faith is characterized by humility, not pride. True faith is characterized by humility, not pride. His soul is puffed up, but, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. See, the Christian life begins with humility, not pride. Humility is the foundation. We come to Christ for salvation with humility of mind and heart, not pride. Not the pride of religion and pride of our good works. No, we come knowing we are broken, helpless sinners who cannot be saved any other way. We come to Christ for his mercy. Surely this is what Jesus means in Matthew 5 and verse 3 when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Christian life begins with humility. And it continues to be, then, a blessed road of humility as we walk with the Lord. There's a second quality to true faith, and that is that it produces fruits of righteousness, not self-centeredness. Verse 5, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, says he gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. He's a greedy tyrant who wants everything to be for himself. And in contrast to that, the humility of true faith moves away from self-focus to serving others. Paul says in Philippians 2 that it's the humility of faith that moves us to esteem others as more important than ourselves. Now we see that phrase in in verse 4, the second part of the sentence, the righteous shall live by his faith. That's really central to this chapter. That verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. And interestingly, each of the three parts of the phrase gets its moment in the light, so to speak, its emphasis. For example, Romans 1.17 emphasizes the righteous. Or, or the just. The emphasis, emphasis there is on the just, that is, those who are declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. For in the gospel, Paul writes, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In Galatians 3.11, Paul cites the verse, and he makes the point that salvation Receiving the righteousness of God can only be received by faith, not works. Because there was a mixture of faith and works going on there in the churches of Galatia. And then, as I already mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, the emphasis is on the shall live part of the verse. And that is emphasizing the kind of living that salvation brings. The, the kind of life transformation that the gospel brings into our lives. So understand that there is a connection here between faith and righteousness. They're intertwined. It is by faith alone that we receive the righteousness of Christ, but that faith never remains alone. It then produces practical righteousness. It changes us. There's a third response. Listen to God's warnings and judgments 
Now, this is the largest section of the chapter. It's uh, very detailed. At times feels tedious as you're reading it, um, but I'll do my best to just kind of walk you through it in a summary kind of way. Encourage you to spend more time on your own this week reflecting on all that is being told there. But basically, there are five woes that God pronounces on wickedness. And Babylon is guilty of all of them, and Judah, God's own people, is guilty of most of them in rebellion against him. And so we understand then that God here is declaring these woes on Babylon. He's going to punish the wicked, but he's also faithful to correct those who belong to him. He's faithful to love those who belong to him. And one of the evidences of the Father's love for us is that he knows how to parent us. He is faithful to discipline us for the ways we stray and disobey and rebel. Why? Because he loves us and he knows where those paths are going to go. And so he's faithful to discipline us, to correct us. Bring us to repentance. So again, let's look beyond the first application to Babylon, but include ourselves. How does God want to apply these truths to our own hearts this morning? So what he does here is five times God condemns specific sins that are the fruit of evil desires in the heart. Okay, you see a chart there. I thought that would be easy for us to follow along um, and be able to kind of walk through this big chunk of Scripture um, more easily. But what you're seeing there is five sins that God condemns and then the corrupt desire of the heart that feeds the sin and then the judgment that typically comes as a result of it. That's what we see here, these patterns. Okay? So what this shows us is that the law of the harvest is timeless. It doesn't go away when you become a Christian. The law of the harvest, that is, that you reap what you sow. It doesn't go away when you become a Christian. In fact, Paul applies it to Christians in Galatians 5. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, in other words, be warned that as a Christian, if you sow to your own flesh, then you will reap what you sow. All right, let's just kind of walk through the chart here. Verse 6, the first woe. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. So the sin that's being confronted is dishonest gain. All right, so he, Nebuchadnezzar, in the, in the first application, is, is heaping on himself things that don't belong to him. He's greedy. Why? Because his heart is filled with hoarding for wealth. He wants wealth. He wants to be the top dog in the world. But there's a judgment coming. He's going to reap a troublesome harvest. Debtors are going to arise. 
because he's plundered so many nations. Verse 8, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth. In other words, what you reap or what you sow is, is going to be what you reap. Dishonest gain. What about you? Is there any dishonest gain in your life? Is there any absence of financial integrity in your life? Don't think that God doesn't see it. Don't think that God doesn't know if you're cheating on your taxes. And you think you're getting away with it, and you think it's benefiting you and your family, but in the end, you're going to reap what you sow. I've known Christian businessmen or businessmen who called themselves Christians who did everything in their power to hide illegally, illegally hide money from the government. Now, I'm all for being wise. Okay, I try to pay only as much taxes as I have to pay <laughs> and no more, legally, because I want to be a good steward of God's money. But it astonishes me in my 30-some years of being a believer how many Christians I have met who regularly cheat on their taxes. And that's just one, one little, little example of a lack of financial integrity. Dishonest gain. Secondly, injustice. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame. You're treating people unjustly for your own exaltation. So the sin that's being confronted is injustice. The desire behind it, he says in verse 9, is self-protection. And the result is shame, family trouble and shame. He sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. You have cut off people. You have forfeited your life. Don't you think you're not going to suffer for it? Why? Because even the woodwork in your house is going to shout, this is not right, and you are going to suffer the consequences for it. Pride, verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood, founds a city on iniquity. There's pride and violence going on here. It, the heart is filled with boasting. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? You want to be boastful? You want to be proud? You want to create an empire for yourself? Then understand that the judge of heaven, the Psalm 2 judge, is one day going to fill his earth with his glory. The Son of God in Psalm 2 will judge all wicked leaders. And that's when the Son of God does that, that is when the glory of the Lord is going to fill the, the, the earth and cover the sea. Uh, number 4, verse 15, seduction is condemned. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Why? So that you can gaze at their nakedness. There's seduction going on here. There's a connection throughout the scriptures between drunkenness and immorality because drunkenness has a way of, of tearing down people's 
uh, resistance. That's why you see it all the time in televisions and movies, that the alcohol abuse results in immorality. They didn't, Hollywood didn't invent it. It's been in the scriptures since Noah. But uh, here, it's a corrupt motive of controlling the person that you seduce. Here, Babylon is seducing. But is Babylon going to get away with it? Would we ever get away with it? No, why? Because the cup is in the Lord's right hand, and it'll come around to you, verse 16. You reap what you sow. And then idolatry, verses 18 and 19. What profit is an idol? Oh, what, what profit is there in making a wooden or a silver idol that, you, that can't even speak? Think back to some of the times in the Old Testament when the prophets mocked in a, in a very sarcastic way the practice of idolatry. And yet that's in our hearts. The heart of self-worship feeds idolatry. And it results in spiritual deadness. There is no breath at all in it, verse 19. Leads to spiritual deadness, not spiritual life. This was all true of Babylon. Many were true of Judah. God would punish Babylon. God would discipline his people, Judah. Do you see any of these patterns in your own heart and life? If so, my, my question is, how long have they been there? Because sometimes that's helpful to think back. Okay, when did, I, when did I take the wrong step? When did I take the wrong turn and got onto a different road? Let me ask you honestly, has there been change in you, both internally in the heart and externally in your life, since you professed faith in Christ? Because when we come to Christ, we receive his righteousness, and that righteousness then takes on a life of its own, and it begins to work itself out in our lives, and we become progressively holy, not in our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a fourth response that God expects from us this morning. That is, lower yourself before the awesome sovereign God. But the Lord, the sovereign one, verse 20, is in his holy temple. He's not like those idols that are useless. No, this Lord, the sovereign king, he's in his holy temple. And because he's in his holy temple, be silent before him. So the point here is bow before the awesome God and the sovereign king. That's what it means to be silent before him. Humble yourself before the king. How do we do that? How do we bow in submission to the Lord? Well, by doing what we see throughout this chapter, by looking to the Lord and waiting on him. So while you wait for God's appointed time, how are you asking God to change you?
And what sins are you actively repenting of? That you might be ready for the Lord's next step. Secondly, live by the faith that is interwoven with righteousness. Humbly come to Jesus. Bring all of your sin to him. Receive him by faith and let him humbly change you. None of us is righteous. We all so desperately need the Lord Jesus. And we bring our sin to him and he is so gracious to forgive us. But we need to bring it in humility and brokenness and repentance not self-justification, not saying, well, I wouldn't have done that if. We just own it. We own our own sin, and we bring it to Jesus. And then listen to God's warnings and judgments. What manner of rebellion are you guilty of? What sins are you keeping hidden that no one knows? Well, God knows. Don't wait for him to expose them. You expose them in confession to him and to those you've sinned against. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so as we approach the Lord's table Uh, this morning. Let me ask you, are you fit to participate? Do, Do you know the Lord Jesus? Let me urge you, don't take communion in an unworthy manner this morning. Talk to the Lord. Confess to him before we receive together. It's time to get right with the Lord before we have communion together. Let's bow in silence and you pray in the silence of your own heart and I'll do the same as we approach the Lord's table. Father, we're so grateful for your mercy which is so abundant. Oh, how much every one of us here today really deserves your judgment deserves to be punished for all of eternity. And yet Christ, oh Christ, the merciful one, has taken our punishment upon himself that we might be set free, that we may have a new beginning, that we might know you and have peace in our hearts knowing that you have taken our sin and you've thrown it into the depths of the ocean to remember it against us no more. And Lord, we don't want to be like the Corinthians this morning who were taking part in communion without examining themselves. So we, we are examining our hearts We are confessing our sins to you. And we are clinging to the promise of your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Christ. Bless our remembrance of that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. In Christ's name.